0: ladies and gentlemen welcome to the neil and jordan podcast podcast where two comedians talk like experts on subjects they are not experts on we are still in lockdown here in sydney i hope you're doing well we are doing another remote podcast uh we're still getting used to the remote podcast so sometimes we talk over each other a little bit or there are some elongated pauses so apologies in advance where uh we're getting used to it jordan how are you doing
1: I'm good. I was just talking to you about the fact that I feel like lockdown is being in an isolated spaceship that you wake up out of your pod two hundred years before you reach your destination and you're the only man left and you're talking to other people on Earth from Skype. But but not Skype zoom. And you
0: were saying, No, I'm just enjoying the solitude, frankly. Yeah, there's a very specific reference. Exactly two hundred years from now are you not interacting with anyone like are you not interacting with your editors or or anything is that not deemed essential work i
1: am via zoom so it is just that relay that goes back 200 years because we have terrible broadband there is constant glitches in it like you are traveling in a spaceship i'm really not seeing the difference honestly. well look this is a difference you can walk out and go to cole's but you know what? Even then, they do have a bar usually with some suave robot that they can talk to. And they're kind of just like, it's just not the same, which is the checkout robots at Coles. So there's no difference. We're going they, back to it.
0: What do they do for food in those uh, dystopian sci-fi films where they've woken up millions, well, thousands of light years away from Earth? Do they just well, eat? They... What, like other humans or what? What are they eating?
1: I imagine when they get pretty desperate, but really they're only showing, I think, maybe the first couple of years out of hibernation. And in that time, it kind of just like rats on the first fleet. They've got more than enough food for their body weight because they're traveling with, I'm assuming, thousands of guests' food and luxury goods. So they've just figured out how to live like kings. And usually, you know, it would be like an economy class and a first class. And so they are living the first class life on an economy ticket. So, like you were saying, in COVID, there is ups and downs to being isolated. Mm. <laughs> That's kind of our. You know, it would be
0: cringy, but would make a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> um, a sci-fi remake of Titanic. So it's all exactly the same plot, but on a spaceship. You know, when you first
1: say that idea, it doesn't seem tacky. And then you start picturing it and then you know that it's going to be down there with Sharknado or something like, well, not even that, one of those Bruce Willis action films that you don't remember. It's It's got that kind of ring to it. Just a lot of cheap, very quickly dated space shops of people getting sucked out of the vacuum and, and you know, in physically impossible stunts of them jumping with a cord from one part of the broken ship to the next. And also, what happens when they get saved?
0: It would have to like, be like a You know, a there's little, that
1: doorframe scene at this? the end. You can't do that
0: in space. Well, you could. You just have to have uh, spacesuits on. And then maybe one of them's running out of oxygen. Uh, but uh, the the man gives his oxygen to the- Or if you want to make it really gender neutral, the, the, the woman can actually give her oxygen to the man. Save him. Make it across with Avatar as well. Just get all of James Cameron's best hits into one sci-fi. Oh like, he can go out, go out with a bang. James Cameron's last film is a uh, is sci-fi Titanic. <laughs> well, so is it Revenge of the Blue Aliens? Is that what happens? Yeah, get they with their extremely primitive technology.
1: Well. Get on an asteroid. Ah, oh, you know, yep. like it is. Yep. Well, it and truly is going out with a bang. And you know what else? You just know it. It cost like $3 billion to make that film. It sounds so, It's oh, two of the most expensive films ever produced in their own timeline. You're mashing them together in what is clearly a money grabber.
0: It, it'll never get beaten. Two of the it'll most like expensive, ben but Hurd. also... Also... Mo- <laughs> most profitable films as well. Hmm. So I think it would, look, you would they're, they're, watch it. Ah, oh yeah, of course. You've got to watch something like that. They're trying to make space exploration profitable. Um, so, look, this is the first step. They can uh, film in outer space and also have the technology to do some asteroid mining. There you go. You kill two birds with one stone. Make a fortune.
1: Could you imagine... The budget and tech. Well, look, if anyone could do it, it would be James Cameron, wouldn't he? I, I, I really don't like giving that man credit because I just see him as the good version of Michael Bay. But still, it's still the good version of Michael Bay. Um, that's no, not hard. <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> it's so not hard. I've to into a to well. advertising
0: exec. Huh? Add Transformers to it as well. What What if you had a Transformers and Avatar crossover? <laughs> Avatar versus Transformers, <laughs> dude. I'd watch that. <laughs> Who would win?
1: <laughs> oh, look. The more of these huge blockbuster film shows that you you cram into that, the better. You, you couldn't get enough cheap mm, tacky films mm. that cost way too much and not make that mad. And you know you know what else as well. You just know the main character would be Mark Wahlberg.
0: Yep. And The Rock Who would, would be, be in there somewhere. <laughs> the Rock. Is he Did they just morph his face it's onto one of the avatars? Exactly what we talked about last week. <laughs> 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 They've got a Rock version of The Avatar. <laughs> Damn. Well, they did it with Scorpion well, look, King. Actually, remember that? That was tragic. Speaking of what we... Mm. That was a that was a great movie when I was a kid, which means it probably wasn't a good movie. I remember thinking mm. Phantom Menace was the best Star Wars film ever when I was about 10, and then mm. I rewatched mm. it on a plane, and I thought, what the hell is this? Yeah. Um, but, hey, speaking of things we touched on last week, uh, we are going to do a, a topic from one of our subscribers, Uh, This is from one of our $30 subscribers. Uh, If you'd like to subscribe and send us a topic, go to neilcohackett.com slash podcasts. Uh, You can also send us a question. This is a really good one. Um, I uh, really enjoyed reading the study that he sent through as well. This one's from Thomas. I know I said I would uh, keep everyone anonymous, but with a generic name like Thomas, I don't think anyone's going to expose you. (laughs) No. Uh, He's from from Queensland. Uh, So shout out to Thomas. Um, All right. So, hi, Neil and Jordan. The study below investigated the influence of factors beyond one's control and their income as a measure of privileges. If the study had combined the mother's and father's occupational status, i.e. how much, of your, par- how much your parents earned, this factor would have accounted for approximately 75% of the income inequality whilst combining all other factors, i.e. parents' country of origin, indigenous status, gender, and country of birth. All of those factors would have accounted for about 25%. This study involved the HILDA survey, which is a large survey of Australian households. Neil, as someone who critiques political correctness, how do you feel about intergenerational wealth accounting for nearly all income privilege, despite most of the conversation being around the privilege of gender and ethnicity? Jordan, how does the media's failure to report on the privileges associated with intergenerational wealth fit within the propaganda model? It seems unlikely that the journalists raised on family trusts and in private schools would want to report on this. Overall, it saddens me to think that low-earning foreigners in Australia versus low-earning Australians are fighting amongst themselves when both could create a united front against intergenerational wealth. See this image. Uh, I can't actually bring the image up, uh, but it was uh, an image basically of uh, Rupert Murdoch with a whole pile of cookies. And then he was sitting on a table with a, uh, a black man and a white man, and they each had uh, one cookie and they were arguing amongst themselves. And Rupert was, uh, you know, um, spurring them on. Uh, Further, I'm confident that the common arguments of gender privilege are heavily influenced by inter- intergenerational wealth. Individuals from low socioeconomic backgrounds are more likely to be sexually assaulted, commit suicide and die in wars. And they're less likely to be in leadership positions or become politicians. Finally, instead of being divided and conquered, how can we discuss this research with others without hurting people's ego? I even had a hard time discussing with my fiancé that the study shows your parents' income, 75%, resulting in 12.5 times as much income privilege as being a male. That was only accounting for 6%. Regards, Thomas. Uh, And then there's also some quotes here from the study. We find that father's occupational status is the single most important circumstantial characteristic. The disparities account for more than 50% of the observed inequality of opportunities. A further 25% can be explained by other parental characteristics. Other parental characteristics account for one-tenth of the unfair inequality of opportunities, while 13% can be attributed to race and ethnicity. That definitely doesn't fit the narrative, only 13%. Gender accounts for less than 6% of the observed income disparities. The contribution of each variable is consistent across the three types of income. Uh, I skimmed through the article today. It's really interesting, actually. They basically came up with this uh, formula to determine inequality of... They didn't just um, track inequality of income, but they, uh, they track the inequality of opportunities um, and that was somewhat correlated to income, but not entirely. Um, so I made some pretty interesting notes. Each dollar Australia spends on welfare reduces income inequality by approximately 50% more than any other developed country. So whatever we're spending those uh, welfare dollars on, it's being very effective. Uh, higher GDP growth generally means higher income inequality in Australia. So when Australia was growing at 4 uh, to 5%, GDP per year, Uh, this was during the 2000s, the uh, increase in the rates of income inequality grew as well. So income inequality has always been, the gap has been widening since the 80s, but it was, uh, the growth of that gap was faster during periods of high GDP growth. Hang on, Um, Neil, I just got to
1: comment on that to just defend Keating's legacy.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, Look, yes, it did go up under howard and it did go up under keating the difference was the reason why it went up exponentially under howard is because he cut back on welfare programs uh he was not investing that gdp growth money back into society like it was it would purely went into tax cuts and buying middle class votes um Hmm. the difference is when you go i've got an entire stand-up show on it actually you can check it out at friendlygeordies.com why john howard really sucked but the Difference is people people always say that this started with uh, Keating, that he just started, you know, liberalizing the economy and that created it. And they Mm. always show this pie chart, which is exactly what you're talking about now, which is, look, uh, before him, workers had a bigger share of the GDP pie and then it reduced by, I think, something like 10% when Keating put in all of his economic reforms and now businesses have more of the pie. What they don't add in is that, He doubled the GDP in that time. So the GDP was twice the size. Workers had a smaller share of that pie, but it was by 10%. But the trade-off was the reason that that GDP growth happened is because he doubled the amount of small businesses in this country by the economic reforms that he put in. So before that, we were on track to get to about a a million businesses by the Howard era. By the Howard era, we had 2 million businesses in just small businesses. Uh, And sorry, no, it's even worse than that. It was a million businesses all up. So that's also medium and large businesses as well as small businesses. Keating increased Mm. that trajectory. So just in small businesses, mom and pop operations turned into a million. Um, On top of that, uh, yes, the amount reduced in terms of uh, wages that... Keating increase, but also uh, inflation stopped going out of control. Now, this is something that they're always saying that, like, he was this Trojan horse that put the unions under control. The reality of this situation is that without controlling unions and saying, "Look, you're all going to have to come together and agree on not increasing your industry's wages." by a certain amount. You're just gonna have like this steady 2% growth because what happens is that they're all bargaining at different prices. And so there would be massive winners. Some unions would be able to just like, usually construction or something like that, would be able to get huge benefits for their workers and their salary would go up. And then there would be other people who were much weaker, smaller industries, I don't know, like niche industries or something like that. Their unions weren't able to keep up pace. So there was that inequality that was happening, but also the other thing that really happened was that by workers just constantly arguing for wages going up at different prices, you were creating insane inflation in this country. It got to the point that we created something that I think the world didn't think was possible until it happened in Australia actually first, which was stagflation, which was that the economy wasn't growing, but wages were just going out of control. And so by giving a steady increased growth, of wages of 2.5%, which only just got fucked over by the Libs, uh, I think under Turnbull, actually. Until then, we had very, very steady inflation goes up, wages go up a little bit more. Inflation goes up, wages go up a little bit more. We had that for 30 years, running like a clock. Um, And in trade-off of all of that, he gave us what you were talking about there, which is that for every, uh, you you know, the, the I can't remember the exact stat that you were saying then, but he gave us a social security net that is so efficient, so effective, that when we put money into that social security net, which still more or less functions the same way that he set up, you are able to get those kind of outcomes if you invest in it, where you just get so much more wealth inequality reduction by investing in that social security net than anywhere else in the country, anywhere else in the world. But sorry, that mm. keep going with the stats.
0: Yeah, no, that's all good. Um, interesting. Uh, I only had one or two more notes here. The, the biggest one which he mentioned in the in the question as well was just the father's occupational status is the single largest factor of inequality of opportunity,
1: hmm.
0: more than 50%. So hmm. what your father does as a job is going to determine how many opportunities you may have in, in Australia. And I think that's a really – I never actually thought of it like that, but that's a very – that's the most appropriate measure, I think, inequality of opportunity and not just inequality of income. Because once you get to a certain level of income, I don't know what that is, but let's say it's a combined parental income of a uh, hundred thousand, then you know the difference in opportunity for a child born into a household with a combined parental income of two hundred thousand, you know, there's diminishing returns there. I can't imagine the opportunity is far greater for someone um, based on that income. Uh, for someone born into that household, whereas you compare the person who's born into a household with a combined income of 100,000 versus someone who's born into a household with a combined income of, well, I don't know, less than 50,000, then the opportunities diminish massively. So, this is this is a really effective way of looking at it. Um, yeah. When he asked me about, you know, po- political correctness and my stance against that. I suppose I have a a bit more of a philosophical uh, disagreement with modern political correctness. And, you know, you can listen back to uh, breaking down the culture or listen to that podcast to hear some of my thoughts on that. But this is a major um, flaw in the current discourse around political correctness, talking about race, ethnicity, gender, as though they are the major contributing factors to a lack of opportunity when this study clearly proves, at least in Australia, that it is your parents, well, specifically your father's occupational status. Mm, mm. I didn't even know. I wouldn't have. That's surprising to me. More than 50%. And and the, the mother's occupational status had a small bearing, but not, not as much. Um, so there you go. The role of the father is uh, incredibly important, very significant, and- is people don't want to talk about those things because yeah, it does go against the narrative. It goes against—I wouldn't call it the politically correct narrative, but just the the mainstream media narrative. Uh, I think when he he was touching on in his in his direct question to you, touch, touching on the propaganda model and how journalists who may have grown up in uh, privileged sectors of society, financially privileged sectors of society, wouldn't be as aware of the uh, tumultuous nature of some uh, lower class environments. And as a result, they ignore it, and they focus on what affects them. And in the upper echelons of society, maybe things like race, gender and ethnicity would be a bigger determiner of how high you can actually climb that ladder. But for the average Australian, these things, clearly, as this study shows, they have a bearing 13% of your race and ethnicity will determine um, your inequality of opportunity. So it's not like it's zero 6% for gender. Again, it's not like it's zero, but relative to that, that proportion relative to the proportion of our energy spent on the conversation, that's not, you know, that's, uh, that's very unequal. If anything, we're not spending 50% of our time talking about how we can improve The occupational status of fathers and, you know, potentially change the culture for some, uh, fathers in certain sectors of society. So this was really eye-opening, um, really interesting study. Really interesting.
1: Man, you just summed that up so well. It's nice to just know that I'm not crazy. I've always thought exactly what this study said. I've always noticed that it's not even... It's like what I was saying before, but I was saying it very inarticulately in the last pod, that I don't even think that money is the real determinant here. It's class, and that's a bulky way of saying connections. It's a bulky way of saying that who you know determines where you go. And now... Mm. As both Neil and I always have to say whenever we bring up these things, we do not subscribe to the fact that, or the, you know, like, yes, in terms of broad general trends, that's the case. It's no excuse for you personally not to be ambitious and move forward in life. Absolutely. Because I do think that these things are just really for people that don't have the prior knowledge in their head of how to move up in life, which is very attainable at libraries. You can get that anywhere today for free. Uh, I would say that might be something that is in, you can't get over that gap historically because you might not have been literate. But if you're literate, I really don't think that you have an excuse no matter how low you are on the spectrum. But, uh, you know, in terms of broad trends for society, there's a difference. And that's, I guess what we're discussing here is just that you purely based on what your father did. And this I think is not because of income. I do think that income comes with just being around other people that are rich, because obviously they're just going to trade ideas with each other of, Oh yeah, you just put it in this investment. And you know, for instance, I'll give you a really, really good example of this, right? When I first started out doing this, I was just on YouTube, I was just making stupid little videos. And then I met Tom actually, and Tom went to Knox. And he said, you've got to start up a business. And I said, how the fuck do you start up a business? And he said, oh, what do you mean? It's so easy, you just do this, this and this. It was like five or six little steps, boom, done. That business has been life-changing to me. And I will guarantee you this, if I was hanging around the friends that I had, None of them would know how to set up a business. And it's easy to do, but it completely changes your tax bracket. It completely changes how uh, you, you pay things. It makes things so much easier in terms of banking. All of these things come from just that one little like, basic piece of knowledge that if you're in a certain class, you just don't have access to this shit. You, it, the thought never even goes into your head the thought for us from mm. my class was kind of just like get a job and my dad yeah. when i was like yeah, doing it, like starting with youtube and you know he, he was supportive to the degree that he could be in terms of his, but like, he could never understand. Look, he was also like, he used to yell at me all the time and say that I was a bum. And like, he was absolutely right. I was a complete bum. Um, but I was trying to go somewhere. But the thing was he came from a class where you don't go anywhere. You go out and this is, I remember this conversation. Like it was yesterday. He was just like, you're out of uni, go get a fucking job. This was like two days after I graduated and he was, and I was just saying, you know, I was just thinking of maybe doing something like comedy and he couldn't comprehend in his head. He was just like angry that I'd even try and do that. And he was just like, no, go out and get a job. And you know where he wanted to, be to get a job at some company that makes like gas at some company that makes natural gas. He was just like, go there. There's a, there's a resume for that. It, it, it was not comprehensible to him to aim for something higher. It's not in their class mentality. And it's not that he's a bad man. He's a really good, mm. caring, he was a great dad. But that's just the prism that he was brought up in, you know? So it never, it, it, was, it was like, this was the undertext of the society, of, of what was happening there. I can, I I know that this is what that exchange was. You are not of the class of people that are on TV. That's not for you. You go pump gas. You know, that's that's what he was saying there.
0: Hmm. Oh, it's, it's your environment and the stir- circumstances you're born in, the people you're around will have a huge effect on not just where you end up or even the possibility of where you could go, but just how you think about your career and your life. Um, I think I've mentioned this on a previous podcast, but I remember when I was in high school, I had a very different experience to you. Uh, I asked my parents, hey, can I get a part-time job? A lot of my friends have part-time jobs. And they said, no, you have to study because that is the middle-class ethnic mentality, especially Mm. especially East Asian. Uh, Mm. Study, get an extremely high ATAR, That will ensure that you can get into a good course in university and you'll get a great professional job and live a very comfortable upper middle class life. Mm. Um, Mm. So to my parents doing something like working at a place that pumps gas, that I don't think it was completely out of the question, but it wasn't in their outlook for me. Um, No. And that rubs off. You know, I just accepted the fact that okay it's not about whether I go to university it's what am I going to do at university I mean ironically enough I didn't even get a degree <laughs> but mm. the environment will shape what you think is possible uh and like you just said that's not an excuse to then wallow in self-pity having grown up in uh, harsher circumstances I think there's always a better option than a victim mindset I um, suppose if I were to play devil's advocate here, there's a uh, prominent conservative idea that even if income inequality or wealth inequality is growing, as long as the uh, people who were previously worse off in society are better off in absolute terms, then that growing gap shouldn't matter. Go go through that now, one more time. I, so if the... Say the Gini coefficient is is rising. If the gap between rich and poor is continually widening, it's not a moral. It's not a moral concern insofar as the people who are at the bottom of that curve, the people on the lowest incomes, are still increasing their material wealth, increasing their standard of living in absolute terms. So mm-hmm. there may be the billionaires, their wealth is increasing at. per year. But so long as people uh, in the lowest tax bracket are still increasing their wealth, even if it is at 2% per year, that's not off ethical concern. That's the argument. What are your thoughts on something like that?
1: That's entirely Keating's argument. That is what they call a third way argument. And I subscribe to it. The problem is they say that the remedy for that is to vote for the republicans or to vote for the liberals but they use that as a mask to not they they kick off all the ladders and instead of making i think under keating and hawk the uh the average millionaire now i'm just picking out numbers but i do remember reading these but it was something along the lines of they were growing in wealth by i don't know let's just say 15 percent a year or something like that and the average person was growing at two percent a year but as you can plainly see from uh how the liberals actually do handle the economy people's wages have been going down they've been reverting they've been getting worse housing affordability has gone through the fucking roof they're now at the stage that 50 percent of the population will never be able to afford a house ever uh, the rest of them, think about that. That means that the other 50% are still living in shit boxes, like, you know, run down fucked apartments and, you know, just uh, shacks and things like that. That's still in that 50% there. Um, and if you see it, it's just year on year, explosive growth for corporations and the uh, upper class. But... Mm-hmm. Yes, they are. you can make that argument, and that is an intelligent, cogent, and doable argument. The reason that Keating implemented it is because he just realized there's no way that you can ever beat the billionaire class. All you can do is be extremely clever, smarter than they are, and make sure that they're happy, but also in the meantime, raise up the rest of society. But there's very few politicians that are as smart as that man. No one that, you know, like that man is world-class. He really was underutilized in Australia. If he was known in any other country, he would be one of the most prominent forefront figures that you would remember. Like he'd be up there with your Gorbachev's and your Margaret Thatcher's and like a real shaper of modern history and more known and respected than any of those names. I honestly think that up there with Nelson Mandela, that kind of stuff. It's just, he was in Australia. Um, The thing is, I don't think that there are many leaders that are competent enough to pull off what Keating did. Uh, But yes, theoretically, I think that it's correct.
0: Okay. I mean, this is... What do you think? What do you reckon? Look, this is... Purely just, uh, well, an emotional response more than anything, but it makes sense to some degree. But if the gap between the wealthy and the working class continues to grow, there are problems that come with that. And they may not necessarily be economic problems because if the uh, incomes of people in the lowest tax bracket are still growing in absolute terms, Maybe they can still improve their standard of living compared to what their standard of living was 10, 20, 30 years ago. But the lack of social cohesion, the class divide in society, these things also have a toll and they can probably be measured in some economic terms. So I don't think it's uh, sustainable. This is purely, again, this is just me, my opinion. I'd have to look at studies of other countries and, compare countries where that gap increased rapidly and other countries where it didn't. But it seems to me intuitively that that can't be sustainable for too long. If, if just year on year, the gap continues to widen, something has got to give. Because even if the material standard of living is going up in absolute terms, in relative terms, uh, I can't see how it would. I mean, maybe, but this is, you know, this is pretty uh, sort of advanced theoretical economics here. Well, it's it's probably not even that advanced, but. No, yours um, is actually the practical
1: outlook on what would happen. As in academically, it is correct that you could just keep going up there. But the reality of the situation is what happens? The richer they get, what do they want? It's not like they're just like, oh, I'm satisfied now that I'm worth $100 billion. No, they want a trillion dollars. So they figure out ways to give. Well, the argument a
0: against dollars. that, the argument against that is always uh, when someone has a net worth of a billion dollars or a trillion dollars of whatever it may be, it's not like they have that billion dollars sitting in the bank. Uh, that's usually in their ownership of a certain corporation, and their actual wealth is only a fraction of the value added to the economy of said corporation or said innovation. So. Uh, what, you know, whatever Steve Jobs did with Apple or now Tim Cook or whoever it may be. Um, the value that added to the economy is in the realm of trillions and trillions. And then their net worth might be about a billion. I'm not even sure if Tim Cook is just the CEO or actually owns the corporation. I'm not sure there. But anyway, the point is, um, it's not, you know, that, that, net worth is uh it's reflective of uh what they generally have in assets which is often you know giant corporations which actually employ people so how do you respond to something like that it's not you know it's not as though they just have it sitting in a bank account although i'm yeah, sure amazon for instance pretty that's... high bank Well, account. amazon
1: like i well, first of all, they have, you know, some of the worst, uh, industrial relations records in the U S as it stands, they are also training their workers to be redundant. They're, tr- they're actively moving towards automation. Um, at the end of the day, like it's just the same thing throughout all of history, which is that no people will try and maximize profit year on year on year on year so you know there might be some truth to the fact that there is people that are employed and that they don't actually have that wealth sitting in a bank account that it kind of just is i don't know like a fraction of the gdp but again this comes back to the same point between howard and keating right it's like okay the gdp might be increasing but where is it going i think it's just a microcosm of that um Yeah, like Amazon, I suppose, has made life a lot more convenient for everybody. That's definitely true. But it's also getting to the point where it will one day be 50% of the world's business will be one corporation. Can you imagine the power of concentrating all of that into you? It's just, it's phenomenal. Like there was actually a point like that in ancient Rome where Crassus, I think Crassus was worth, oh Jesus, again, like all these figures, but he was way, 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 way richer than Bill Gates, way richer than Bill Gates in terms of comparative wealth. Mm. And, you know, the guy could raise armies at, at a whim, could just invade other nations because he felt like it, because he personally just wanted a, a statue of himself. The, the level of power that comes with having that much share of a GDP in yourself. It's like what Bill Gates says. Like, There's something seriously wrong there, just intuitively, when Bill Gates can actively make the argument that Microsoft should be on the G8 because it earns more than Canada does. I don't know if that's still true anymore, but there was a point where it was like, no, they, they are richer than Canada.
0: <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> wow. But something's got to give. I, I mean, suppose
1: that's, that's the whole thing. Is like, I think that it's just like it's all academic. Everybody always just sits there and looks at your Bernie Sanders figures and it's like, yeah, 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 they're right. But did Bernie Sanders really practically get anything done? I'm sure that he got some extra workers' rights for Maccas workers and things like that, and he was able to slip through a few little pieces of legislation here and there. But are you able to hold the reins of power – for a significant amount of time like Keating did for 12 years and completely changed the trajectory of a country. That's the real test of where academia and theory meets, re- meets reality. Right. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I think that yes, that's true. And if, but like the other way to look at that is what happened in practice when Keating did do that and yes, he made the rich, richer, the poor did not get poorer really. Um, what actually happened in the end was he became a victim of his own success because he was creating, like with all of that. He, 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 actually, he is Jordan Peterson's wet dream, where he's, you know, that classic saying of like, you want, uh, what, what is it again? Equality of opportunity, not a quality of outcome.
0: Yeah. That's really what he was of creating. not equity. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. That's what he was going for. And succeeded yes. in doing, as you can see by the fact. There he is, the man. Yeah, that's what he was God doing. There, an in he was mug to have. I <laughs> know, uh, especially with a grey shirt. Of it. Anyone that, like you really know that you're getting into that uh, <laughs> self-help mode when most of your t-shirts are just from Bonds, like ours. It really is just that.
0: Got to keep it simple, man. You got to keep it. And they look the best. Completely redesign your wardrobe expend if you haven't mental already. energy on what... Exactly. Expend your mental energy on what is worthwhile, not on picking out an outfit, especially when you're in lockdown, when no one's going to see it.
1: I know. And it looks better hmm. than most of the shit in your closet anyway. Um, but yeah, he... Because he created opportunity of outcome, like he actually did create a society where there was more class mobility. In fact, there was so much class mobility that that's what became that class known as Howard's battlers. What were Howard's battlers? Howard's battlers were, before his changes, Labor voters, strong, solid Labor voters that had jobs in industry and factories. And then... Because of his changes, all of a sudden, those factory workers, if they're enterprising, they go, oh, fuck, actually, I can open a business because it's really easy to get a loan now because he's just deregulated the banking system, you know. Um, I can do that because there's a strong enough social safety net. He gave people the conditions that if they wanted to strive for a better point in life, they could. They had those tools there for themselves, increase the level of education in this country, all of that kind of stuff. Mm. That. That's leadership right there. That's creating a better future. That is actually like what I think. And I think that that's why that resonates so much that I forgot it. But yeah, you want opportunity of outcome, not equity. That is really what you're looking for there.
0: Um, hmm. But high I social mobility think- is a bit. Huh? Yeah, go on. I was just saying, mean, social mobility is in- important as well. You want people who are able to move from class to class based on their aptitudes and their effort. Um, Just go on. What were you going to say? I'm really, really glad that this
1: study came out because it actually does really indicate to two things. First off, obviously wealth is the first biggest determinant, but the, the big, big determinant really there is psychological. Uh if you think about it, if you're well, just talking says, about th-
0: it doesn't it I don't think it specifically said wealth, father's occupational status. So yeah. I'm not actually mm. that's just well, whether he's employed, first of all. But then I'm assuming
1: Yeah, but also how, uh, what is he
0: employed in?
1: You know, there's there's not a it's not a coincidence mm. that I think it's something like 60% of the boards, the CEO has their kid on the board. They have some role in the corporation. Oh, Sorry, not not uh, business owners, of business owners. That is not a coincidence. That is not just because they coincidentally happen to be the most qualified person for that job. It's because they're their son. It's because they're their daughter. You get chucked in. That's obviously
0: what's happening mm. there. And look, um, success does beget success if you've grown up with that mentality, as we discussed earlier, they may actually be, ironically enough, they may actually be quite suitable for the job because they've, their uh, merit is based on having been around that environment for so long that they're actually quite well equipped to perform that role. Now, mm. I don't think that's necessarily the case, but there's an argument to be made there.
1: Yeah, um, Definitely. Definitely. But again, it's because of the fact that they have had the unfair advantage of 20 years of someone popping all of that into their head. They really did have a 20 year education there. What I think that actually happens as well is that there is a complacency which goes into your argument and his really, which is that in the propaganda model, that's what happens is, as I'm always saying, journalists are the modern day historians. And it's because they're, and they're the losers of the elite class and they are all in that realm together and therefore they see the world in the same way. And this is something that
0: Mm.
1: I'm actually seeing a lot more now that I'm having a lot more journalists write about me in a way where they're personally talking about why they don't like me. When I really dissect what they're saying, it really, again, comes down to what my dad was saying as well, which is that like, you are not part of this class. You don't belong here. Why are you more known than me? Fuck you. There is a definitely an undercurrent of that. Um, and it's like, again, like really what they are saying is know your place. Um, I'm going to get into it. Like with a lot of video responses to it, because it's very, very obvious that that's what's happening there. And, and, and like the mental laziness that goes into that, that they don't understand that they are there because of the people that they grew up around with. There, there might be some very superficial, if you said that to them, they might be like, yeah, 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 anyway. Anyway, let's talk about how you're a racist. You know, that, they'll, that is at the forefront of their mind.
0: Mm. Yeah, th- 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 it definitely isn't a perfect meritocracy. I guess the question you'd then have to ask is whatever changes may be made to the system Uh, what are any potential adverse effects of those changes and could they actually hinder people's opportunity to climb up the social ladder? Uh, Also, it's something as simple as, you know, if someone has already been given an apartment by their parents or $100,000 in a bank account, I mean, compare that to someone who starts off with $100,000 of hex debt. I mean, that $100,000 just is a lump sum. If you invest it, that's going to grow. If you just put it in the ASX, it's on average going to grow at a certain percentage each year, whereas $100,000 in debt, that debt is going to actually accumulate with interest unless you're actually eating into it. So it's not an equal starting point to be in $100,000 in debt or in a $100,000 surplus of wealth. In fact, yeah. it's very unequal. Uh, yeah. that next $100,000 from, from that first $100,000 you have that next $100,000 would come very easily. If you're, if they're each, okay, say are these two people, they're both, one of them in a $100,000 debt. One of them has a $100,000 in just, I don't know, the ASX. Um, they're both 25 and they're both earning say 70K a year. Let's say six, 60K after tax, <laughs> after, after tax they have 10k to put aside each year, the person with 100k in debt, uh, that 10k, a lot of that that won't that debt won't go to 90k in the first year, because a lot of that will be interest. So I don't know what it would actually go to. But it's fair to assume it could go down to I don't know 94k or something like that. Whereas that 100k if it's invested in the ASX, it's reasonable to assume that it might even just go up to 110k on its own. And then an extra 10K is put into that. That's 120K. So already in in year one, that person um, has eaten into maybe 6K of their debt, whereas this other person has increased their wealth by 20K. I mean, these are just very rudimentary um, figures here. Uh, If there's any economists or people in finance listening, let me know, know the specifics. But the general gist of what I'm saying is that um, debt is almost worth more because you're constantly paying the interest on it. Whereas wealth, mm. even if they're the same in, in dollar value, the wealth will just accumulate on its own, assuming that there isn't a, a big recession or you know, there's a big dip. But then even then, that would affect the person who has the 100K in debt. And both of these people aren't starting from that different a starting point Someone with hundred mm. k in debt, that's probably most people who have done a uni degree who haven't had much help from their parents. Uh, whereas someone who's been given $100,000, that's probably someone who might be upper class. It's just grandparents have chipped in. Hey, here's a trust fund for you. It's not even the wealthy. So you, that then compare those two people after 10 years, you know, compare the pair. <laughs> the person with $100,000 in debt may not have even paid off that debt. They're still in debt, whereas that person, their portfolio has probably gone up to $200,000, $300,000. Who knows? Um, mm, mm, so mm. it's it's not this like pure meritocracy. But again, what I, I guess I come back to is the government getting involved, which it has to to some degree. I'm not saying it shouldn't at all. What is it then? To, what are the repercussions of that? And how could that potentially adversely affect social mobility? Uh, Those are the questions I'd also ask when it comes to analyzing various policies brought forward by governments in um, curtailing intergenerational wealth. I mean, something as simple as say, like an estate tax, I think the issues there is actually policing that. But that seems pretty reasonable to me. That actually seems like a a decent thing for the state to do because it's not if you're just happen to be born into a wealthy family, you haven't earned that wealth. If it's if it's inherited, if it's passed down, your father or your mother earned that wealth. So something as simple as that, um, and then there are other measures as well. The other thing I found, like I said, very interesting about the study is that whatever Australia is spending their welfare money on is it's far more effective than um, whatever other countries, OECD nations as well, are spending their um, uh, welfare programs on. So mm. Australian mm. governments, obviously, they're doing something right. <laughs> mm. By the way, this study is not a new study. I think it was 2014. I think it was recent, but it's not, it was not uh, brand new.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, like the, the big thing is that, i am willing to bet money on i think that the reason that ours is better and if you did the study now to be much 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 less effective because we've had six years more of liberal party rule but they would be privatizing the welfare system they, well they are privatizing the welfare system bit by bit here and there oh well you guys don't need to do your little Telephones at Centrelink. We'll just give it over to our mates in this corporation over here. No, no, no we don't need qualified. We'll just send that contract off to them. What are they going to do there? They're just going to sell, like something like that, for instance. Like just if you privatise the phone service at Centrelink, the people that would be at Centrelink would be people that understand the law, would understand the government policy. They would be able to point you in the right direction of where you're supposed to go in the system, and that is efficiency. When you privatize it and then you sell that contract off to some liberal donor somewhere, what is the first thing they're going to do? Oh, well, why are we hiring these people that have law degrees to answer phones? We don't need that. Okay, we'll just chuck in this cunt that used to work at Dan Murphy's call center. That's what they do. They just start making it shitter, and then you have a bunch of people there that don't understand where these phones calls are supposed to go. I think actually there was, uh, something along the lines of once they privatized it, uh, an increase of fivefold of how many unanswered calls there was that's just the baseline the other thing that happens when they privatize it is they're not keeping tabs on the system anymore so they're not trying to improve the system constantly they're just watching it slide but they don't know what how it's sliding because they just don't have the same statistics and measurements anymore but that is what's happening it's it's slowly going backwards so if you looked that's just phones that's just phones the other things that they've it's one small example right um but they're doing that to every department. And so when it comes to welfare, that money just wouldn't go as far anymore. And that's because they probably be comparing it to countries like the UK and the U S where they just wouldn't have that kind of infrastructure. Wouldn't have had that infrastructure since the eighties. It would have gone much further back a lot longer for a long period of time. Um,
0: Hmm. To come back to some of the other points he made in his initial question. Um, he said here about, I'm confident the common arguments of gender privilege are heavily influenced by intergenerational wealth. Individuals from low socioeconomic backgrounds are more likely to be sexually assaulted, commit suicide, and die in wars. I've been looking into this uh, very briefly, but there's a there's a phenomenon called luxury beliefs, and they are often you know culturally small L liberal beliefs that are held by the um, commentariat. That's a, a nice term. I, I love that phrase. For those people. Yeah, I mean, we're part of it, aren't we? <laughs> yes, we but, are. Um, certain beliefs that may be beneficial for them, I give them more, I suppose, social liberalism in their life, not be constrained by the responsibility of a family or of traditional cultural norms. That may help people who are financially secure, who uh, live in safe neighbourhoods, but it actually... Uh, adversely affects people from low socioeconomic backgrounds. So something like, you know, modern feminism, if you will, that's great for upper class women who work professional jobs, don't need a man and don't need to be tied down by the responsibility of, um, sticking by, a, a man who's, you know, nefarious or abusive towards them. But for working class women, um, who are on a lower wage, that's where something like the institution of marriage will have a huge impact on their kids Mm. Uh, and having Mm. a stable father in the home. Now, that's not to say if the father is unstable, she should stick with him or anything like that. But certain cultural beliefs can help people in higher classes and hinder people in lower classes. That's the gist of that argument, and I think that's very appropriate for this discussion so appropriate and also i remember it just from my childhood my
1: parents were very briefly together i've got little glimpses of it before they split but i remember constant arguments constant and i remember my parents being a lot more vicious and nasty to me than other parents that i'd go to their houses that had a lot of money and they just be like Hey, do you want to go to video easy? Here's $50. Is that enough? Oh, okay. Here's a hundred. Um, all right. You just get pizza, lollies, whatever you want. See ya. Bye. And they just fuck off to the opera or whatever. Uh, you'd go to my house. It'd just be like a mattress on the floor for the guy there. Uh, they'd cook you something or something. It It was different. Right. Um, but their parents almost invariably when it came to rich upbringings, Money really determines how much tension there is in the house, how much violence, how much, like, well, like not that my parents were ever violent to each other, but you, you could feel it when it like got to that point where they'd start throwing plates and punching each other. Like it was getting there. It was getting that tense. And there was a lot of that just about, because it was just wasn't the same level of resources that other people have, where if they're just like, mm. Oh Uh, we're having difficulties in bed or something let's go to a marriage counselor or oh no uh i have just i'm just not feeling myself at the moment i'm going to go to our beach house for a couple of weeks and find myself that's not the you're (laughs) in the same rat cage together so you just that never
0: goes away um bit of eat pray love there um just just quickly i was gonna say No, it's just, that's the that's the archetype of the person who would do that. But um, well they're always going to India after a breakup to find themselves. Yeah. Everyone goes to India yeah. to find themselves. Yeah. What are you looking for? All right. Um, <laughs> no. but I've always thought uh, instances of domestic violence would be higher in lower socioeconomic neighborhoods, and I I I think they are. But this could be anecdotal, but um. Speaking to Eliza on the Sex Else podcast, she told me that most of the calls she went to, where there was a, a report of domestic abuse, were in the North Shore in Sydney, which is the rich area, one of the rich areas of Sydney. So that shocked me. Now that again, that's anecdotal. I don't know what the actual statistics are. I, I would still guess that instances of um, domestic abuse would be higher in lower income homes, and 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 by no means are we saying you know that's an excuse for domestic abuse because you're poor or something like that. It's a terrible thing to do um, and it should be locked up. But you have to also analyze how financial pressures can uh, impact a marriage or a family or just the general upbringing of a, of a child. Um, and to say, to have certain what you could call luxury beliefs people who are financially secure, not only financially secure, financially well off, wherein leaving an unhealthy marriage wouldn't have a financial impact on the on the children, or it, it may it may go from you know whatever it is a combined income of three hundred thousand to just one person's income of a hundred thousand or something like that. But there's no uh, major financial stress that is incurred, and that doesn't rub off on the children. That that yeah, it's made me rethink a lot of the ideas I've had um, because I've been very progressive when it comes to relationship ideals. And I think I generally still am, but I, I am a lot more uh, cognizant of, I guess, how class plays a role in these sorts of situations. And then another paragraph he said here, he said, instead of being divided and conquered, how can we discuss this research with others without hurting people's ego? Uh, I have a, I had a hard time discussing it with my fiance. The study shows your parents' income, 75%, resulting in 12.5 times as much income privilege as being male. <laughs> well, I, that, I mean, you just got to say it. If it hurts people's ego, then tough luck. That, they, if these are the statistics, then if you choose to be offended by it, you're choosing to be offended by facts. Uh, as much as I sound like Ben Shapiro there, I think that's the way <laughs> to see it. Um and then another point he made here, which is that it, it saddens me to think that low-earning foreigners in Australia versus low-earning Australians are fighting amongst themselves. Now, again, there's almost a a class issue at play here because if you are bringing in migrants from uh, war-torn nations, uh, poorer nations, nations that have a very different culture to Australia, now you, you can't just say people have questions or qualms or About that, and I say this as a brown person, you can't just immediately label that as racist and bigoted. Because if there is a certain population that is emigrating to a country, and let's say they have a higher crime rate on average, and they move into working class neighborhoods, well, it's working class people who already lived here that are going to bear the brunt of that social cost. Whereas all the people who are in favor of that migration policy, they're not the ones living with, uh, you know, the recent migrants. And Mm. they can pat themselves Mm. on the back and say, I was being progressive, you know, Mm. I was fighting against Mm. the bigots. But, Mm. I mean, this is a classic trope in almost all of my comedy. It's like all the people who are fervently in favor of migration, they live in white enclaves. They live with one little Asian family at the end of the street. Like, again, I'm not saying... um, not anti-immigration, and obviously I'm not anti-immigration. But, hell, even my family, who are Indian, we uh, grew up in Hurstville, Hirshful, and Hurstville's always the suburb Pauline Hanson uses. But, look, it really did transform in the space of 10 years. Now, a lot of these were Hong Kong immigrants, and if there's any case for uh, refugees coming into Australia, it's people from Hong Kong. Dissidents in Hong Kong should be granted refugee status here. But uh, the suburb transformed in the space of not even 10 years, five years all the stores were yeah. um, Cantonese and there was y- you would hardly hear English walking down the street now again I'm not saying that's some kind of as uh, some kind of hateful sentiment and I mean look maybe there is a bit of unconscious fear there um, and to be honest I actually feel much more comfortable there than I do in like the northern beaches but um you have to allow people the space to have these conversations because it usually is people from a certain strata of society that are bearing the brunt of the negative, potentially negative impacts of luxury beliefs, such as, you know, very high rates of immigration, uh, progressive cultural ideals. Uh, These generally benefit people in the upper class more so than they do people in... um, lower stratas of society. And that's just something that I think people don't actually... I mean, even look at something like the riots that happened here in Sydney just the other day. Um, I don't know this for a fact, but just looking at some of the footage and the photos, they looked like there were a lot of people who worked in construction, uh, mm-hmm. tradies and mm-hmm. blue-collar mm-hmm. workers and, and and people who had small businesses that have just... after. Successive lockdowns, and with the government support not being enough to keep it running, they've maybe lost it. Now, it's very, mm. it's just a very different circumstance to say someone who is still able to uh, do whatever professional job they were doing, have the exact same salary, and just work from the comfort of their home. Mm-hmm. Not to say they're not suffering either, but I think it's fair not to say the it's same a different degree. degree of suffering. So, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, I guess those are the points I'd like to um, conclude on with my overall view on on this um, subject. Uh, Anything else you'd like to add?
1: Well, actually, I've been thinking about that a lot, migration recently. And I think it's important to put this on which is first off, and this is really interesting. I never thought about this, but I talked to this lecturer that was talking because I'm 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 obsessed with overdevelopment now. Uh, that's my new little rabbit hole. But he was talking about that, and he was saying the reason that people are so pissed off when there's apartments that are getting built in their uh, neighborhood, there's many factors to that, like we were just saying. But something there's something very like. Overdevelopment in terms of why the fuck are there so many apartments that are getting built in Sydney? And I'll tell you why. It's because the Liberals' entire migration policy is just based on how do we increase coal's profits by 2% over the next year? And if there's just more people in the country, then more people need to eat <laughs> so coal's goes up. You know, that is that is their it's, it, migration policy. You can look at all the think tanks that go into it. Look at who funds those think tanks. It's always things like BP... It's always property developers, it's always coals, it's just people that more bodies make equals more money. So they just pump them into the fucking western suburbs of Sydney, pump them into the northern suburbs of Melbourne. Um, but yes, it seems to piss off this changing of cityscapes to just make it overbuilt, so just so many apartments, uh, turning everything into duplexes, destroying all the park space, making it all just like a concrete jungle. That angers people because localism, as in your little suburb, I never thought about this before, is just a microcosm of nationalism. So when people are just like, you fuck off, get out of Australia, we're fucking full and stuff. Like everyone has that feeling on a small level when it comes to their suburb. I feel, I don't feel it because I, you know, for the past 10 years I've lived in Bondi and that's always just been overdeveloped and shit. Um, But My girlfriend who lives in the Shire, when I go down there, you see it. It used to be just that picturesque suburb that Andy from Toy Story lived in, right? Everybody with their nice little quarter-acre block houses. And then all of a sudden, it's just duplex, 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 apartment block, duplex. That's happening like at a, a breakneck speed in this. And I could go into that in another. It's actually really interesting why. But that's happening there. And that makes people really angry. And it's such like the thing that is just amazing about all of this when it comes to these like upper class types, right? If you look at, say, them just attacking me, for instance, what are they always saying? They're just like, oh, my God, I can't believe he said that. What the fuck? That's crazy. And it also goes into why there would be more domestic violence calls from the North Shore. It's because in the North Shore, they tolerate less because they've not exposed to anything, right? Whereas when you're in the Western suburbs, you're not gonna call for domestic violence. Everyone else is getting domestically violent. And and you've got other things that are like big on your plate that you're worried about, which is like, they can say, oh, okay, I'm just gonna leave. Uh, But where are the fucking women's shelters in the Western suburbs? They're all getting closed down because of privatization. So where the fuck do they go? You know, So they're not gonna call the cops. Um, There's all that shit happening there. But yeah, when it comes to migration, The the, the the severe lack of tolerance that you see when it comes to those North Shore places, right? Like they get a kick out of just being like, my next door neighbor's Muslim, but they're not Muslim, are they? They're like that, my, like I, I, I sometimes wear <laughs> like a stylish hijab when I go to the beach or something as like a fashion statement. They're it's not, me. I'm it's fresh out me. of the Afghan caves, right? Yeah. It's not that. It's a completely – it's like the working class of the third world meets the working class of the first world. That's what's happening there. Whereas if you have ethnics that are going into like the North Shore or something like that, that's the upper class of the third world with the upper class of the first world. They're going to have a lot more in common than these ones down here, right? Um, But, yeah, when it comes to migration, they are – Just, just some of the things that I, I, I've never really thought about before, which is also that you're just cramming more and more poor people into a place where there's less and less resources and it's becoming more and more ghettoized. Like there's a, a, a constant thing that you hear town planners talking about with all the apartments that are getting built in Sydney. And you can already see the cracks emerging when they're just brand new developments. Uh, and they are talking about the ghettoization of Sydney, which is that North shore, is going to stay in its little first world pocket but it's like in the u.s where you go to the hood and you go to the inner city i think there maybe it's turned around and gentrified like it has here but whatever like the where the poor people live there's very little difference between where poor people live in the u.s and a third world country they'll have a few more resources but not many Mm that's the separation that's happening there but then they have like such a small tolerance for what happens like you see the amount of pissed offness like uh local councils that have been traditionally liberal in the north shore for instance they're at the breaking point and they're willing to turn to independence they won't go labor but they'll turn to independence maybe greens they'll turn into that and it's because of you know, one fucking one hundredth of the development that's happening in Western Sydney, a hundredth of it, you know, just being like that sandstone house has heritage. Oh no, they're going to like change the fucking patio of it. We, we need to put in the lawyers, like they'll, they'll organize all of these protests. They'll have lawyers working on it, slapping it around. They'll have, you know, no matter what, like just again, because they have resources, more resources fighting that. And then they turn around and then say to the west of Sydney, just like they're so racist. Why do they hate the fact that like Lakimba basically looks like a rock now? Why are they pissed off at that? They're just racist. Hmm. It's again yeah, what you're it, talking about, like the level of tolerance they have is really just surface level.
0: Luxury belief again, because luxury uh, belief. They whether they're you know economically conservative, their uh, share portfolio increases with the continued increase of migration and just the general population increase whereas productivity has stayed pretty stagnant i'm pretty sure um that's not again not my area of expertise um and the people i guess with what you could call the elitist cultural views can pat themselves on the back and say oh we're so tolerant look what we've we've allowed all these people in but it's like look you never seen i say i don't say this i'm clearly not anti-immigration by any stretch of the imagination, but you have to analyze the full implications of um, higher migration rates. And there may be social costs for people who live in localized communities that have been massively transformed. um, And they don't, you know, their voice deserves to be heard. I'm sure some are actually racist, but in my experience, it's usually not a racist thing. It's like a, it's a cultural thing more than anything. Um, I know in the UK and London, a lot of pubs are just closing down because, well, because immigrants don't drink, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> Overall, yeah. that might not be a bad yeah. thing, actually. But, um,
1: but such yeah. a good example of like, yeah, th- things can fundamentally change. I
0: was just going to say, I think the best... What I was thinking about the other day is like, all right, if you live in the inner city, Newtown or whatever, you know, whatever the progressive area is in your capital city in Australia, let's say there are a bunch of American Trump refugees. I don't know how, but I don't – Biden says, okay, they're all domestic terrorists. So by whatever legal definition, they actually can claim refugee status in Australia. 30% of your suburb is suddenly MAGA Trump hardcore Republicans. What, you're not going to – you're, you're going to still say, yeah. I'm okay with this. Yeah. It's not race or yes. ethnicity. It is culture. They're yeah. not going to be okay with that at all. No, Christ. They wouldn't be okay with one. If exactly. they saw a guy
1: walking around with a Trump hat, you can guarantee there'd be a bunch of signs out the front of his house the next day saying hate has no home here and all that shit.
0: Yeah. And the ironic thing is, you know, in, um, in the UK, they had a by-election for one of their, uh, I think Northern England seats. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it was predicted that it would go to the Tories because they've just been winning everything there. But um, there was an independent that ran, and apparently he's a bit of a firebrand, infamous for running as an independent in very hotly contested seats in the UK. Um, Mm. He is Mm. very socially conservative, uh, but uh, economically closer to uh, Labour's policy. I think. Mm, And mm. it was a very high Muslim population. Uh, And some of the policies they enacted were, first of all, they were talking about how Boris Johnson is close to Modi. So they were trying to make it a Pakistan versus India thing, Mm, which, which, first of all, Mm. I don't know how inclusive that is. Um, There was also footage, which I found is so ironic. It was footage of the Labour MP being... Uh, I don't know if harassed is the right word, but uh heckled by uh Muslims saying no, we don't want uh LGBT acceptance toward our children's school. Which I just thought that was like hilariously ironic in a weird Because <sighs> it was like, well that's <laughs> another like that's the it, it's similar to like the turf versus fourth wave feminism. Battle, which I just sit there with my popcorn thinking, well, uh, look, this is what you get. What's turf? <laughs> um, trans exclusionary radical feminists. So uh, feminists like JK Rowling and I guess some of the older ilk usually um, who don't think trans women are, have the same experience as biological women. And then I don't know, JK Rowling made a few tweets Um and is she never actually got cancelled. I don't know how you define cancelling anymore, but a lot of progressive people were pissed off at her. Um Yeah. And again, this is one where you just you sit there with your popcorn thinking, well that's what you get. That's <laughs> <laughs> what you get. You created this culture that oh, vi- I'm a victim because I say I'm a victim. And, you know, my value comes from being a victim. Well, look, here's a taste of your own medicine. So no, no sympathy.
1: Don't you think it's it's fetishization of the self? That's what's happening there. It's either an education yeah. system or <laughs> an ethos or something that is just being infected into that class of person that is just making them so inwardly focused on themselves that they're having arguments over that kind of shit. Because it's again, something that I just really don't think happens in the West, like Western suburbs and things. I I really would like to see how many TERFs and fourth wave feminists there are there in comparison to upper class suburbs. It's like, Again, they don't have, people that work for a living don't have the time to think about that shit. They don't have the time to That's dissect true. themselves like that. Yeah. yeah. You know what? As you said before, when you have an actual job where you work, what do you do when you get home? All you want to do is flick on the tube and drink a beer. Yeah. You want to forget <laughs> that you exist. You don't want to focus on yourself. Dude, you want to sit there and watch something really menial and, like, get buzzed.
0: Look, it's it's even when I've done full days of filming, I don't have the mental energy to even listen to a, a podcast. I just want to watch comedy or reality TV. Um, so You're who right. am I to judge? And that's doing something right. I love. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. you know, Um well, that was great. That was I really enjoyed that discussion. I think we'll wrap that one up there. Thomas, thank you. That was a brilliant topic. Uh, yeah, thanks, Thomas. Thoroughly enjoyed that one. Um, and, and you know what else I'll say as well, too. Thomas? Yeah. Thank you for thinking about that stuff. You're really on the right track with it. Yeah, and, and all the best. I think you mentioned that you have a fiancé in there. Well, hopefully, after you've told her that <laughs> gender accounts for 6% of income privilege, hopefully she's still... Still in it for the long haul, and all the best with your uh, with your wedding. Um, She'll come around. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she maybe. has to. Your mo- your occupational status is going to determine the future of her your future, future. children. Exactly, <laughs> her children's future determines is is dependent on whether you have a good job. So get a good job. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for listening, guys. Just to wrap this one up, I'm going to be extremely. Uh, Shameless and plug this CBD oil whom I have a sponsorship with. Um, it is Crush Organics CBD oil. It's actually really, really good. It's improved my sleep dramatically. Uh, so go to crushorganics.com, use the code Neil, you get 40% off. If you haven't tried CBD oil, it's 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 really good. What so, does it do? It just makes you sleep. It calms you, alleviates uh, anxiety, tension, stress, and it, it's Really helps you sleep. I'm sleeping as good as I have been since I was a kid. And this is in a lockdown where I'm, you can hardly get much exercise. So I uh, cannot say enough good words about her. Girl Crush Organics. Use the Look, co- Make sure you I'll use say the code this. Neil. Use the code Neil.
1: Use the code Neil, but I'll say this. It's sad that a product like that has to exist, but I'm glad that it exists.
0: It's all natural.
1: It's all natural. It's just, again, like that whole thing of, I know exactly that, just not being able to get a proper night's sleep and tossing and
0: turning. So it's good to well, you know that, that there's an alternative there. Just really quickly to wrap this one up, because a lot of our job is just sitting there looking at screens. Mm. That's not exactly conducive to restful sleep. Whereas no. uh, if, you, if you work a labor job, you probably do, as long as you know your shifts aren't too intense, probably do sleep. Well, you, you have the capacity to sleep a lot better than we do. So
1: I'll tell you what, like that's definitely true. My dad was in bed ten p.m. every single night. I'm in bed yeah. two a.m. and then I get up and just be like, oh,
0: I'll just work till four a.m.
1: That's me. <laughs> that's so, what happens. Yeah.
0: So in lockdown, you just gradually your your the time you go to bed gets later and later and later to the point where you're like, all right, I'll just stay up from five a.m. to five p.m. and then go to sleep early. <laughs> <laughs> having said that this lockdown i've been I, and it's half of it's because of this um mm, mm, i've mm. been really good with my sleeping habits i don't know because i haven't been doing shows uh because what happens you do a show you get home pretty late and then you want to chill out and then you know i i try to tell myself all right i'll still stick to the you know 7 a.m alarm but then you know if you've had five hours of sleep you like, oh, why bother yeah yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. But no, this is actually, this being in the lockdown, if there's one benefit for me, it's, I've been really strict with my routine. It's great. Good on you, the yeah. Seven each day, pretty much in bed mm. by 10. It's, yeah. Good oh, for my standards. That's good for most people. That is just good like, stop. <laughs> like, oh, that's a sleep So, Well, actually, yeah.
1: yeah, that's true. But I think actually the, the golden thing would be get up at sunrise, go to bed at 8 PM. That would be the oh, peak, yeah, man. but you are so close to that. You're, you're <laughs> a few hours distance. It's like one
0: hour here and one hour there. Really? Biggest achievement of my life. What can I say?
1: I'm actually really, I'm, I think it's up there, man. Like it, this, the fact that someone's able to do that when they have our type of job, I know how impossible that task is. I envy you. <laughs> all right, well, it's all actually a good plug for your CBC oil or whatever it's called. CBD oil. There we go. Yes, CBD. one last
0: time. Make sure use the code Neil Crush Organics. It's out of focus. Hang on, let me get it. Get it in focus.
1: That's not going to work. It's zoom.
0: Oh, well. Well, it's got a beautiful um, packaging. All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys. We will uh, see you next time. Bye, guys.